everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Richard Kuklinski, otherwise known as the Iceman. I will give my fiancé credit in the beginning. He told me about the Iceman around when we first started dating, and he came back into my mind when I started planning episodes for this podcast. Kuklinski is the first person we'll be covering who made murdering people a career instead of just, you know, a little hobby. He was a shady husband, father, and a contract killer. He has had many, many victims, all of which we won't be able to cover today, but we will definitely learn all about how this brutal and wicked deviant came to be and the impact of his reign of terror. Buckle up, because there's a lot going down on this episode. Before we get started, let's hear our terrifying tidbit for the day. The FBI defines a serial killer as someone who has committed two or more murders as separate events and they're usually acting alone. Hitmen, however, differ from other serial killers because although they fit this definition, they don't necessarily do it for any other personal gain aside from the money they'll be paid for completing the hit. They probably enjoy their job to, you know, some degree, but their crimes aren't sparked from passion and revenge, getting someone's life insurance, or purely for the thrill of it. I'll probably go into all the types of serial killers in another episode, but Hitmen are also different because they don't go through the typical cool-off period that other serial killers experience. They keep killing at whatever rate that, you know, they're hired to kill. This is their job. They can't just not kill anyone for six months. Hitmen will have no personal connection to their mark, and they can very easily dehumanize them to finish the task as required. Like I said, this is their job. Criminologists from Birmingham City University have also determined that there are four different levels of Hitmen. The novice, the dilettante, the journeyman, and the master. A novice is someone who's probably going to make several mistakes that could get them caught or killed themselves. They're probably still wrapped up in the dark fascination with organized crime and are excited at the prospect of killing for pay. The dilettantes are usually older people who aren't really looking to make a career out of being a hitman, but they do it if they need to clear up a sticky financial situation or get rid of someone who's been a thorn in their side for too long. These guys just do it because they felt like they had to. The journeyman is the next step up. This group has honed in their skill much further and they're much more comfortable, adept, and reliable when it comes to consistently murdering people. Although at this level, they're more likely to have crime syndicate connections, which, you know, nets them more gigs, these connections have a higher chance of bringing them down if members of the syndicate start getting caught. Then we have the master, the elusive S-tier level of hitmen. These guys rarely, if ever, get caught by the police. They're so efficient at what they do that it's actually incredibly difficult to gather much data on their behaviors. It is suspected, however, that from the surgical precision that this level of hitmen apply to their work, that they were probably involved in the military at some point in their lives. These are the guys who get called to do a hit in another continent because they're just that good. And it's also helpful to do jobs that are far from home to avoid any local speculation or police attention. Richard Kuklinski pretty much achieved the level of master hitman, but his hubris and overconfidence would eventually lead to his undoing. Our story takes place in many cities, and even crosses over into New York, but the Kuklinskis lived in Dumont, a town in Bergen County. This town is mostly residential, so it isn't a super metropolitan town. It is very densely populated, with a population of almost 18,000 in about two square miles, so driving through this town is not always the easiest. Other than that, according to Niche.com, it's got an A for economic and ethnic diversity, most people own their homes, and it's overall a very safe town. The residents of Dumont generally agree that there isn't much crime to speak of and that the police presence is visible, reliable, and responsive. It makes sense that a professional serial killer would choose to live in such an unsuspecting town. 
Richard Kuklinski was born on April 11, 1935 to Polish migrants Stanley and Anna Kuklinski in Jersey City. Richard was one of four children and the family was very poor throughout his childhood. His father was physically abusive and his mother was narcissistic, controlling, and cold. When Richard was about five years old, his father beat his older brother to death. When questioned by the police, the father just said that the child had fallen down a flight of stairs. After this incident, Stanley left the family entirely. One of the other brothers was sentenced to life in prison after raping and killing a 12-year-old girl and throwing her body from the roof of a building. He also, for some reason, had her dog and threw him down there with her. This is all to say that Richard was not coming from the holiest of families over here. When Richard was a teenager, he had a very relentless bully named Charlie Lane, who was a leader of a local child gang. Eventually, enough was enough and Richard snapped. When he was going to hang up his coat at a coat rack at school, he tore the rack off the wall and went to go find his bully. He then proceeded to beat his bully to death with this rod at the age of 14. To add to the brutality, Richard somehow made his way down to South Jersey and threw Charlie's body off a bridge after ripping his teeth out and cutting his fingertips off to prevent anyone from identifying the body. Apparently, Richard was very anxious that he would eventually be caught for this crime, but he never was. No one ever found out it was him who killed that boy. So this sparked the inception of his criminal confidence. Oh, and then he also killed cats and dogs for fun. After eighth grade, Richard dropped out of school. He began engaging in petty theft to help out the family. He apparently had a knack for stealing because by the time he was 18, he had garnered the attention of the DeCavalcanti crime family. Fun fact, the Sopranos was partially inspired by the DeCavalcantes. But anyway, a member of the Genovese family, another crime family, put Richard in charge of a crew of truck hijackers who just stole anything that was in the trailers, and they would split the profits or the findings 50-50. This was a pretty good deal for a burgeoning professional criminal. After showing his proficiency with carrying out thefts, he moved up from burglary to murder. A logical progression if you ask me. Richard was given his first assignment and he had no qualms or reservations because he had already killed a couple years prior. No surprise, he was very quickly a solid and reliable hitman for these crime families. Unfortunately, shortly after this job, the Genovese family member that was giving Richard the most jobs was sent to prison on gambling charges, leaving Richard with a serious gap in his schedule. To fill his newly found free time, he just started killing for fun. He figured he would practice on random New Yorkers to keep his skills sharp. Richard gained the title of the Iceman because he would freeze his victims after murdering them. This ensured that the time of death couldn't be determined with much certainty by crime scene investigators and medical examiners because the bodies couldn't decompose at the same rate. Although Richard had this tight, efficient process of murdering, he was still considered an outsider to the mob. He could never officially be a part of it because he wasn't Italian, even though he was in high demand in the hitman market. So Richard takes his skills and becomes a freelance killer. He gets paid very well in this position because of his ex expertise in murdering and disposing of bodies. Now, I've heard people turn a wide variety of talents and skills into lucrative projects, but this man legit turned killing into a full-time hustle. The member of the Genovese family that was originally giving him the jobs was eventually let out of prison. But unfortunately for Richard, in 1960, that man was murdered in a mob hit. This meant that Richard had to get an actual job. In the midst of his vicious crime sprees, Richard started a family. Well... Technically two families. He first had a son with a woman that usually isn't talked about. I'd like to think that that child was much better off not being raised by him. Richard's next foray into romance, however, was the stuff of nightmares. Richard began working at the Swift Line Trucking Company. There, he meets Barbara, his future wife, when she was only 18 years old. Barbara had just graduated high school and she was working as a receptionist at the company. 
She saw Richard as being the cool bad boy, and her being such a young woman, she was intrigued. Sadly, Richard wasn't your typical bad boy, as we all know. The two started dating, and their relationship immediately turns violent and controlling. One day in 1962, Richard picked Barbara up from her house. She wanted to break up because he wouldn't let her live her own life. She couldn't have hobbies, she couldn't hang out with her friends. She was a young woman, she wanted to explore and have her own life. Well, Richard was not receptive to this at all, so he stabs Barbara and she starts screaming. And then he beats her until she's unconscious. The next day he shows up at her work and demands that she take him back or he kills her. Barbara wants to live, so she marries Richard. Over the next decade, by all outward appearances, they seem like a regular suburban family. By 1972, the couple had moved to Dumont and they had two daughters, Merrick and Kristen. When Merrick was born, Richard immediately fell in love with her. He just really poured over her. He really wanted to give his kids all the things he didn't have since he grew up very impoverished with abusive parents. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to teach what you weren't taught, so the children still grew up in a violent and chaotic home. Richard went back to being a full-time criminal by working as a bootlegger, stealing, selling porn, and of course, being a contract killer. The children were just told that he was a wholesale distributor, something nice and vague with words that a child probably wouldn't understand, but they low-key knew that he was out there doing some shady stuff. These illicit activities allowed the family to live a financially comfortable life. The children attended good schools, the family drove nice cars, they looked like your typical all-American family. To keep up appearances or maybe to convince himself that they were a happier family than they actually were, Richard loved to take pictures and be like, look how happy my family is, look how nice our cars and clothes are, we're a healthy, successful, and functional family. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Although Barbara stated later on that Richard had never hit the children, that didn't stop him from still being abusive in a multitude of other ways. One time, Kristen put her hand in a pot of water that her mother was boiling for some tea. She was little. Kids just do random stuff that gets themselves hurt. Richard did not see it this way. When he came home and saw that Kristen had gotten hurt, he flipped out on Barbara and beat her for even inadvertently leaving something dangerous in the reach of their children. Poor Kristen was mortified and couldn't quite grasp what was going on. She felt such a mixture of terror and guilt as she watched the scene unfold in front of her. Richard had many vicious mood swings and severe depression. He feared that if he went to a doctor for help, then they would confirm all these issues he had, and he just couldn't bring himself to face the truth like that. Also, not to humanize him in any way, but I think that's a common reason why people don't go to the doctor when they're sick. Knowing the truth makes it real, even though you've been actively struggling with that truth every single day. Richard would also scrawl disparaging and critical things about himself on the walls with a black marker. They would say things like he was stupid or he was mean and stuff like that. He would fly into rages where he would just punch himself in the head over and over again and leave these horrible marks on himself. The girls would plead with him to stop hurting himself, but what could they do? They had to walk on eggshells with him because they weren't sure what would trigger him at that moment. Richard would often confide in Merrick, the older daughter. He had a very big soft spot for her. Well, as big as a soft spot as a man like that could have. He told her that story from earlier about him killing his bully, and she had no idea how to process or respond to that admission. She was probably the only non-criminal who knew he did this. Richard also told her that in the event that he killed Barbara, he would have to kill her and Kristen because I'm assuming he figured they would report the murder. 
He had the nerve to say that killing Merrick would be the hardest because she was his favorite. If that doesn't display how absolutely depraved Richard Kuklinski was, then I don't know what would. All Merrick could respond with was, It's okay, Dad. I understand. Kristen, on the other hand, felt like she was her mother's protector. She said that she felt as though her role in the family was to keep her mother alive, which, unbeknownst to her, was actually keeping her and Merrick alive as well. One time when Richard was beating Barbara, Kristen stood between the two adults. She said that she would only move if he stopped hitting her. Richard warned her a few times to move out of the way. When she didn't move after the third warning, he just picked her up, moved her about three feet to the side, and continued to beat Barbara. That incident truly let the girls know that there was nothing they could do to stop their father from being who he was. They just kept to their routine, kept their heads down, and didn't ask any questions. They said that they just felt helpless their entire childhoods. Now that we've established Richard's home life, let's get back to how he was doing in the streets. We're still in 1972, September specifically now. Richard has been offered $10,000 for a hit. The contractor told him that if he made the victim suffer, he could earn an additional $10,000. Richard knew this would be easy money for him. He flagged the mark down at a stop sign, grabbed him and wrangled him into his trunk, then brought him to a cave in Pennsylvania where he had brought some of his previous victims. Now, this is one of the most creative ways I've heard of killing someone, and I've been listening to this stuff for at least a decade. Richard sets up a couple of cameras and lights in the cave, all pointed at the victim. This guy is, he's tied up, naked, and completely vulnerable. Then Richard just leaves. He leaves for four days. When he comes back, the mark is just bones. There was just a skeleton laying there in the cave. Rats had eaten all of his flesh off. Richard just packs up his equipment and leaves. When he comes back into town, he hands the contractor the footage of the carnage and the contractor reluctantly accepts the footage and pays Richard the $20,000. As you can probably imagine, Richard didn't have too many friends. Between not being able to trust many people as a professional criminal and probably being generally unlikable, Richard did not have many people to kick back with. A man named George Maliban was basically his only friend. He was also a career criminal, as well as a gambler and a loan shark with the, about $30,000 of debt. You think regular debt is bad? Crime debt is even worse. So George turns to Richard for help. Richard was able to pull some strings to get him a loan of $35,000 from the Gambino crime family with the friends and family rate of interest. That's a pretty solid deal, right? Well, it might have been, but after a while, our friend George decided that he didn't need to continue paying the money back. This was big mistake number one. George's move to default on this loan negatively impacted Richard's reputation with the Gambino family and probably by extension the other local crime families. The Gambino started applying pressure on Richard because he was the one who vouched for George. So Richard goes to pick George up to have a talk with him. After reminding him to keep paying the Gambinos back, George responds by saying, I know you won't hurt me because I know where you and your kids live. This was big mistake number two. Richard immediately pulls the car over and shoots George five times. This was seriously an amateur move because he let his emotions get the better of him with no plan ready. Richard proceeds to stuff George's body into a 55-gallon drum and then hauls it over to a chemical factory in Jersey City. He had dumped several bodies in this location before, so he thought nothing of leaving yet another one there. The first issue was that George was huge, just like Richard. He was 6'3 and like 300 pounds. And this was only a 55-gallon drum, so Richard had to break and cut his legs so he could fit the guy's whole body in the drum. The next issue was that the barrel eventually fell over, hit a rock, 
and then the lid fell off and a leg was hanging out. Eventually, the owner of the factory found the body and of course called the police. They identified the body as being George Maliban and they contacted his family. George had told them when he left the house that day that he was going to see Richard Kuklinski. So the police show up at Richard's door and he denies everything and they don't pursue him any further. After this encounter, nobody in the Kuklinski house could ever mention George again. Richard had murdered his only friend. By the 80s, Richard had been killing at various levels for nearly 30 years, so he wanted to branch out into other areas of crime. You know, diversify his skill set or whatever. He starts a breaking and entering crew with four other men named Al Renke, Gary Smith, Danny Deppner, and Percy House. He also partnered with a man named Phil Salamini, who ran a pawn shop that pretty much exclusively sold stolen goods. On one of their crime excursions, they robbed another criminal named Louis Mazgay, who often carried around a wad of cash so he was always prepared to buy stolen products. The crew then killed him inside of Phil's store and stuck his body in an icy well, put a tire over the well, and then put plywood, and then put cement over it. Louis was carrying $90,000 at the time of his death, and the crew split the earnings among themselves. Unfortunately... Richard had made yet another mistake. This time, it was trusting Phil to not be such a talker. To decrease the chances of being turned in, Richard typically kept his different criminal hustles separate. Phil, I guess, didn't know that this was Richard's intention and went screaming to the B&E crew that Richard killed George Maliban in cold blood and basically like, oh, how metal that was. As if this wasn't bad enough, unbeknownst to the crew, the police were onto them. In 1981, they launched an official investigation headed up by Pat Kane. One of the members of the group, Al Rinke, got arrested and became an informant for the police. This dude rats out everybody except for our man Richard because he knew better than to do that. He just said that the group was headed up by some guy named Big Rich. I don't know why he couldn't have picked like any other name and decided to like half lie, but whatever. Now the crew members know there's a target on their backs. It's October 1982, and the cops now didn't only have Al in their clutches, they also had gotten Percy and had indictments for the other two guys. Richard knew that once Percy was arrested, it was only a matter of time before the other two remaining members fell, and then himself. I don't know if Percy was like the glue holding the morale together or something, but his apprehension was what caused the group to crumble even further. Fast forward to two months later, Richard's got his thinking cap on to come up with a plot to prevent the other guys from revealing his identity to the police. He sends Gary and Danny to hide out in a hotel in North Bergen and wait for the next steps. Richard goes to a local restaurant and grabs a trio a couple of burgers, and he sets aside the two burgers for Gary and Danny, one with pickles and one without. Now, he had already determined Gary to be the weak link of the group and the most likely to become another police informant, and he lets Danny in on this plan. Richard decides to poison the burger without pickles with cyanide and hands it to Gary. He liked to use cyanide because it usually killed pretty quickly and tended to not show up in autopsies. Danny checks his burger real close to make sure it's got pickles on there, and he gleefully takes a bite. Gary, on the other hand, immediately starts choking and coughing and flailing on the mattress upon ingesting his poison burger. But apparently, he wasn't dying fast enough for their liking, so Danny strangled him to death with a lamp cord. Danny's wife was supposed to show up with the getaway car, but she backed out at the last minute, so they just had to leave Gary's body at the motel and stuff it under the mattress. Obviously, the cleaning staff found the body and called the police. So you can kind of see how these crimes are getting increasingly sloppy, careless, and, and desperate. A couple weeks later, it's Christmas. Merrick brings her boyfriend Richie over for the holiday to celebrate with the family. Richard, shockingly, was very fond of Richie. I'm not sure if it was because he was Merrick's partner and he adored Merrick, or if he genuinely liked Richie for, you know, for Richie. 
Either way, he immediately exploits his relationship with Richie by having Danny hide out at his apartment so the police can't find him. There would be no clear connection between Danny and Richie. Unfortunately, Danny had already blabbed about Richard's nefarious ways to his wife, who then turned and blabbed to the police when they showed up at her house in response to a noise complaint. She just spilled everything she knew about the whole situation. So now Danny is next on the chopping block. Richard does a little remix on his method of killing Gary, but poisoning Danny's roast beef sandwich with cyanide. He also shot him with a 22 caliber pistol with a silencer for good measure. He wrapped Danny's body in some plastic garbage bags and called Richie up to help him dispose of the body in the woods. What was Richie supposed to do? You remember how Richard killed his only friend and let his own daughter know that he would shed a single tear when he had to kill her? There was no denying Richard what he wanted. Merrick was deeply disturbed by Richie's forced involvement in her father's escapades. She cared so much for him and she was terrified that he would misstep and be picked off like the rest of Richard's victims. She told him to pack up all of his stuff and leave town so that he wouldn't get implicated any further into the crimes. And that's what he did. The police are really onto Richard now. They began following the Kuklinskis around town to see if they could ever catch them slipping. More and more murdered bodies were popping up, but there was nothing definitive tying them to Richard. On May 14, 1983, Danny's body was found in a reservoir in West Milford. His body was spotted because a turkey buzzard had been circling his remains. A cyclist saw the buzzard and went to see what it was circling, and that was when he saw this big amorphous object wrapped in garbage bags. Upon closer inspection, the cyclist identified a face and an arm hanging out from a hole in the bag, so he called the police. Danny's autopsy reported that his cause of death was poisoning, and clearly they could tell that he was also shot in the head and strangled. This death was eerily similar to Gary Smith's. Four months later in September, Louis Masgay's body, the guy who had all the money in his pocket and he was like dumping a well, was found near Orangetown, New York. As stated before, his body was frozen solid, so it would be very difficult to gather any conclusive evidence. The police are getting frustrated. People keep dying and they have a good feeling that it's Richard, but they just can't confidently point to anything that would guarantee his involvement in the murders. They then decided that maybe an undercover agent would yield them the results that they had been searching for. They send in an ATF special agent named Dominic Polifrone to pose as a basically a foot soldier to the crime syndicates. His undercover name was Dominic Provenzano. As an aside, I don't know why they would pick a name so close to his real one. Why do they keep doing this? I feel like that's just like a little bit messy. But anyway, it's now 1985, and after 18 months of trying, nothing is really coming of the operation. Dominic had become a gun dealer for Richard, but he couldn't really get close to him or actually have a real conversation with him. Dominic tried to bait him into killing someone by essentially being like, hey, we've got all these weapons that are ready to commit murder, but Richard wasn't buying into it. A lot of time and resources were going into trying to apprehend this man. Pat Kane just straight up questioned Richard about what happened to Gary Smith. Richard denied ever knowing Gary despite Kane showing him evidence of call logs between him and Gary. This was such a ballsy move that Pat just had to leave. He knew he wasn't going to get a confession out of him like that. However, Richard could tell that Pat was closing in on him, so he wanted to switch it up and spray him with cyanide. This would be the final mistake Richard would make. So he reaches out to Dominic, the undercover agent, and asks him if he has any cyanide or if he knows of a cyanide supplier. Dominic's effort to try and get close to him finally paid off because Richard decides to open up about everything. His whole criminal career. He's so twisted that he was making jokes about how he killed people and how he got rid of their bodies. He really did view killing as a sport. 
While the undercover operation was going on, the police were still keeping the Kuklinskis under constant surveillance, day in and day out. His family was getting sick of it. Because he terrorized them all the time, they were just dying for Richard to just get caught. The fact that trained law enforcement professionals couldn't get him after all this time really made the family feel hopeless. If they couldn't get them, did that mean that the family would just be tortured indefinitely? Barbara and Kristen started brainstorming ways that they could kill him and experience the least amount of punishment. Barbara planned to spike his meatloaf with high doses of Valium. They figured that Barbara would be the one to kill Richard and Kristen would take the blame, and she would get in less trouble because she was a minor. Barbara knew that she could never divorce him, and Kristen was a child who couldn't escape anyway. They didn't let Merrick in on this plot because they knew that she was the closest with Richard and would have tried to talk them out of it. She always made excuses for him and defended him when her mother and sister would try to vent their frustrations about him. Although Richard could kill without giving it a second thought, his family had actually maintained their humanity. But luckily, they wouldn't have to come up with any more murder plots for him. On December 6, 1986, Dominic approaches Richard to let him know that Pat Kane was asking about Richard's murders. This news doesn't faze him at all because the cops had been following him for so long and if they had any evidence, they would have arrested him by now. Plus, he totally trusted Dominic. When Dominic asked him to help kill a man that wasn't even real, Richard was all for it. He figured Dominic wouldn't be a loose end, so he also tells him how he murdered Gary Smith. Bingo. 11 days later on December 17th, after a six-year-long investigation, the police finally arrested Richard at his home in Dumont. His family is completely taken aback because they didn't think he would ever get caught. They had spent decades trapped in the inescapable grip of his abuse, and they expected life to always be that way. Merrick was in the front row holding her newborn son close, anxiously listening to everyone's statements. Family learned the details of all the corrupt and horrific crimes Richard was committing that they had previously only vaguely known about. In March 1988, Richard was convicted of murdering Gary Smith and Danny Debner. He was sentenced to life in prison. Later on that same year in May, he pleads guilty to killing Louis Maske and is handed another consecutive life sentence. He also confessed to killing another guy named Paul Hoffman, who was a pharmacist from Cliffside Park, but the charges were dropped against him in that case. He even claimed he murdered a member of the Gambino crime family, a group who was consistently giving him work. In 2003, he pled guilty to killing an NYPD detective named Peter Calabro in 1980. Over the years, he admitted to murdering a slew of other people. In the end, the number floated around 200. Probably unsurprising to anyone, Richard thrived in jail. Kristen said he could be king there because he was so respected. He was the final boss of hitmen in the New Jersey State Prison. He really just chilled out, played cards, and he pretty much ran the place. On the outside, his daughters were mentally and emotionally crushed by this outcome. Even though Richard was awful to them their whole lives at home, now they had to deal with having their father be imprisoned. As if it wasn't already bad enough, when the Kuklinskis went to visit Richard, they were like celebrities in that prison. Everyone, even the guards, would go silent and stare when they would walk in. This was not the kind of popularity any child would have wanted. After serving 18 years of his prison sentence, Richard Kuklinski died at the age of 70 years old. During those years, he gave numerous interviews to journalists, criminologists, psychiatrists, anyone who could gain access to him. He ever participated in an HBO special about himself. There have been movies, documentaries, and books made about him. He never expressed any guilt for any of the murders he committed, although many believed that he did not kill as many people as he claimed. After Richard was arrested, it came out that Dominic, the special agent, was actually next on his hit list. Dominic responded to that information by saying, 
The problem was that I was always one step ahead of him. He added, F him. He is lucky he had this long life he had in prison. He should have died a long time ago. This, of course, made me laugh because it was so justifiably savage. But Richard stood by what he did until the day he died. The only time he even showed a scrap of humanity was when he was talking about the harm he caused his family. Merrick said she couldn't love him enough to make him stop. But Kristen said it was that he didn't love her enough. Sometimes there is no amount of love you can show someone to stop them from being destructive to both others and themselves. Kristen concluded that he just never had a chance in life. He wasn't shown any love as a child and that left him permanently damaged. He was committing crimes for nearly 40 years before he was caught and not a single one was able to cure or even decrease the misery he battled daily. My fiance actually has family members that live near Dumont at the same time that the Kuklinskis did and they knew Richard on like the legal side of his life. He needed repairs just like everyone else, you know? But anyway, I know I didn't dive into every single murder the Iceman committed because one, this episode probably would have been like twice as long, and two, we'll probably never know how many people he actually killed. Richard Kuklinski was a man who was never taught morals, empathy, or how to mix well with society, and he took that out on anyone who didn't do exactly what he wanted them to do. He would harm someone just for making him feel bad about something. He claimed that his top pet peeve was loudmouth people because they brought back memories of his abusive father. Trauma like that guided countless choices he made to the darkest option. This man was barbaric, unyielding, and straight up cruel because he couldn't quiet all the negativity that was eating away at his mind. He acted as such a corrosive entity throughout his entire life. Once he realized that his illness allowed him to pick up a lucrative skill in the underworld, he fell deeper into that hole and let those voices completely take over. The world can work just fine when everyone is agreeing with the social contract, but when people defect from that, they may start seeing the actions of some really scary people. I guess in a way justice was served because he was served two consecutive life sentences, but Richard genuinely enjoyed prison life, so you guys can make your own judgments about that. But that is it for me today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I will see you all next week. Goodbye!